Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Dr. Holly Oxhandler, social work professor and researcher at Baylor University. Holly's research in the connection between spirituality and mental health led her to an important insight, namely that growing in our awareness of the image of God inside each of us can help us to flourish. She writes about this in her recent book entitled The Soul of the Helper, Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself So You Can See It in Others. In our conversation, Holly and I talk about both the mindset shift and the practical habits we can adopt to attend to the divine spark in each of us. I found Holly's story so remarkable in the way she describes her own transformation from a person who fully embraced the fast-paced nature of life into one that is more accepting of human limitations while still continuing to pursue her personal and professional goals. Holly has great things to say about spiritual practices and mental health resources, and I think you're just going to love this interview. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dr. Holly Oxhandler is the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development and an Associate Professor at Baylor University's Diana R. Garland School of Social Work. Holly studies religion and spirituality, health and mental health, and is especially interested in whether and how mental and behavioral health therapists discuss their clients' religious and spiritual beliefs in treatment. She developed a number of instruments to measure the integration of clients' religion and spirituality in mental health treatment, and she also co-hosts the weekly podcast CXMH, Christianity and Mental Health. Holly lives in Waco, Texas with her husband, Corey, and the couple has two children, Callie and Oliver. She loves to read, paint, meditate, learn about others' stories over a cup of coffee, and most of all, spend time with her loved ones. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I wanted to start at one particular place that really caught my attention because it's such a compelling story about mm -hmm. what it takes to slow down when you're living a life that is very busy and full. It's kind of toward the middle of your book, but you tell the yeah. story of your maternity leave after giving birth to your second child. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a little snapshot of your experience in that maternity leave and perhaps contrast it with the experience you had when your first child was born? Yeah, uh, that's such a good question. And um, that experience that you are um, kind of nodding to, as you mentioned, was after uh, my second child, my son was born. 
um, was while I was on faculty uh, at Baylor University, I was in my second year of uh, the tenure track journey. And um, it seems like many of your listeners probably understand the, the tenure yeah. track and that process. Um, but for those who haven't heard of it, it is a six year process where um, faculty have to publish a certain amount of papers and do certain types of research and teaching and, and things like that in order to um, earn basically a lifetime contract with mm -hmm. that university. Um, and so I was in my second year of that process. And during, um, after our, our son was born, um, Baylor so graciously gave me 12 weeks of paid uh, maternity leave, which, you know, was just such an honest to God gift for um, just for me and my own journey. It's something though that I really wish that all women and families yeah. uh, could experience because of the struggles and unanticipated um, events and things that happen after having a child and the lack of sleep and the priority right. of wanting to bond with your child and, and attach well with them. And, um, but, but Baylor really um, prioritized that and did give me a 12 week paid leave. And so it was during that season though, that even though we had a lot of difficulties with transitioning into having two kiddos um, and had some health struggles, there still was this opportunity for me to not be needed by my colleagues, mm -hmm. um, to not work for those 12 weeks, to not need to respond to emails or plan or anticipate or write or do research. And it was as much as a gift it was, I also write in the book that it was really difficult too. Yeah. Um, it was a season in which I had never in my life not been working or needed by colleagues. And so to be in that space of like, what's happening? Like uh, my colleagues don't need me. My students don't need me. What is going on? Right. Um and for many folks, they might be like, that's amazing. And, and I did feel that. So like, I hope that's clear. Like I absolutely did warmly receive it, but I felt so deep in my soul that there was this momentum beneath everything I was doing that just wanted me to keep going. And when I was given the opportunity to slow down and be still, it was, um, it was almost painful for me because I didn't know how to function in that slow of a pace or to not be needed, to be afraid that like, you know, my colleagues would forget me or that I would not be needed or, you know, it was really difficult actually, um, as someone who had been chronically over-functioning yeah. for like my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and to juxtapose that with my first child, um, just to, to compare for the listeners with my, when my first child was born, our daughter, um, I was told that I could either not take a leave and continue working in my graduate assistant position that I was in. Um, and so I would have no leave and I would just have to keep going after she was born. Um, or 
I could be given up to six weeks of unpaid leave, um, like unpaid maternity leave, um, and I would have to pay COBRA fees for insurance. But, you know, at that time, you know, my stipend was like $1,100 a month, and there was no way we could afford that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I write in the book about how my, um, my supervisor, who was also uh, a woman who had had her child uh, during her tenure, tr- or no, during her doctoral years, um, she kind of worked with me to create something so that I didn't have to go on that unpaid leave or pay COBRA fees. Yeah. So, but it was, I mean, it was night and day difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what I think is amazing too, is the way you embraced that slower pace. And Mm -hmm. even, even though it felt a little painful to Uh come face to face with the ways that your deepest parts of your identity were attached to that, that need to work and to, to prove yourself, um, Mm -hmm. that you embraced that fully and began Mm -hmm. a really remarkable journey. Yes, yes, yes. You're absolutely right. I mean, it did. I, I am grateful for the ways that I didn't fight it because I could have been working straight through and just been like, okay, Baylor, like you're giving me this leave, but I'm going to keep working anyways. And, um, and I did lean into it and stay in conversations with friends, um, spend lots of time with God wrestling with those moments of like, why is this so hard for me to be still, Mm -hmm. um, and to let it, let it change me, let Mm -hmm. it transform me during that season. Well, and I think uh, there, so many of the fruits of that are show up in your book, which we're going to talk about today. I'm so excited. It's the title is "The Soul of the Helper: Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself, So You Can See It in Others." And I just want to start um, by talking about the title for a second. I love the way that you chose Mm. the word "helper," and you even have a note toward the beginning of the book, describing a little bit more about what you mean by that. So can you talk about that a little bit, why you chose the word helper? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think that, um, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that, you know, in one way, shape or form, we are all hopefully helping or serving others in some way whether we are a parent or a partner or a loved one or a faith leader or um, a mental health care provider or a health care provider, um, you know, advocates, community organizers, first responders, administrators, authors. I mean, I could go on and on thinking about who these helpers are among us um, who are loving and serving others to the best of their ability. And, you know, when I wrote that, that part at the beginning of the book, like that was one of the first things that I wrote before jumping into and writing this book in thinking about who these helpers are and really trying to hold space for what it is like for so many of us in the ways that we are doing our very best to love and serve others to the best of our ability. And, um, just trying to meet the needs around us because of the ways that we do care for others because of um, motivation based on our own experiences that we've had or ways that our faith motivates us um, to care for others. Um, You know, when, again, I think just when I'm thinking about helpers, like this is all of us, we all are helping in some capacity. Um, 
No, I didn't mention teachers too. Teachers as well. Like um, it's, there's just, and we've seen so much of this over the last couple of years in the ways that folks have really just, you know, they see a need and they are there wholeheartedly to meet it. And that, that need may be something that is glaring and, and feels really big, or it could even just be, you know, the barista that is serving their customers as they are giving them that cup of coffee to start their day, not knowing, you know, what it is that they're going to be off and doing, but, um, but I really am thinking of these helpers in a very wide spectrum of ways. So toward the beginning, you give a bit of an overview and you talk a little bit about the research that you did, um, connecting mental health and faith. And then you Mm -hmm. talk about this theory that you developed called namaste theory, which I, and I would love for you to give us maybe just a little bit of a sketch of what the research was that went into this book and what people can expect when they're reading it. Um, I love that you asked about the research. I, you know, part of my job is as an associate dean for research and I, I geek out over the research. So I appreciate that you're bringing space for that in this conversation. Um, so what I had found kind of over the years in through my own research and through others' research that, you know, had been done was that there are some really important things that we do need to be thinking about, especially as everyday helpers, but just thinking about, you know, I think our shared humanity. And that's first that, um, you know, there is a connection between these two areas of our lives, our spirituality or our faith and our mental health. Mm -hmm. And that when we integrate, um, like mental health clients, and also we see in some of the health research too, that when we integrate clients, um, spirituality into treatment, it actually impacts the treatment outcomes. And in many cases, the clients actually get better faster. Mm -hmm. And so this is an area of clients' lives that, you know, mental health care providers in some ways are trained to think about, but in a lot of ways, you know, we also are, have a lot of opportunities ahead of us to be doing some work in this area. Um, But it's really, really important for mental health care providers to be paying attention to this because they're, they intersect with one another. I've also seen in the research that you know, even though the National Alliance on Mental Illness tells us that one out of five of us will meet criteria or that one out of five of us are currently struggling Mm -hmm. with a mental health condition, we do see in some long-term studies that over 80% of us will meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness Mm -hmm. by the time we're in middle adulthood. And so um, this impacts nearly all of us. I actually wonder about the, you know, the 17 or 20% of folks who it didn't, but you know, it's, it's very prevalent. Um, and we also know that over 80% of us consider ourselves to be spiritual too, that this is another part of our lives. that's really important. Um, the, the third thing that I would note would be that we do see in the research that clients um, are oftentimes saying that they prefer for their spirituality or their faith or their religion to be included in treatment and they want to talk about it and that they want the mental health care provider to be you know, bringing it up and asking them about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see that these areas of their lives are relevant. So again, like it's just these areas, they intersect so um, in such important ways. And then um, the last piece that I would elevate, which we'll get to when you're just asking about namaste theory, mm-hmm. the last piece that's really important to note is that I have found in my research 
that um, mental health care providers who are deeply motivated to live out their faith tend to um, more frequently have positive views and more frequently actually integrate their client's faith. Mm -hmm. So they're, the ways in which they are deeply motivated to live out their faith is the top predictor of their inclusion of their client's faith in treatment. And so that's, you know, that's really been at the, the core of my research, looking at what's happening with mental health care providers. And when I was doing this research and when I noticed this pattern, I started to think like, okay, this is interesting because I'm not just seeing it in my research, but I'm seeing it in psychology and in marriage and family therapy and in nursing and counseling. Um, and this, this word, um, namaste that you had just mentioned before, it really started to bring, make some sense to me in thinking about bringing some order to this pattern. Hmm. Um, I was very loosely familiar with this term from, um, from years prior, but, um, so I wanted to take some time to better understand the roots of it. But from my understanding from years prior was that namaste means the sacred in me recognizes the sacred within you or the divine in me honors the divine in you or the image of God in me recognizes the image of God in you. Um, and so I wanted to learn a little bit more about this term from its roots, um, which uh, the, the Sanskrit term um, actually breaks down to me, I bow to you, but more generally we understand it to mean, you know, what I had just shared about the sacred in me recognizing the sacred within you. So when I started to really um, like wrap my head around this, it made such perfect sense with these mental health care providers that yeah. the more deeply motivated they were to recognize the sacred within themselves um, and to connect with that within themselves, the more likely they were to recognize it within their client. Mm -hmm. um, and as I talked with you know everyday helpers, I realized really fast that this is not just a theory for mental health care providers, but it is for these everyday helpers. So for parents and for teachers and caregivers and healthcare providers and on and on, um, podcasters and <laughs> editors and authors. And, you know, that attention to the sacred within us is so important within the equation of paying attention to this within our fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. so. Holly, you have developed a framework that you call the seven stage mm -hmm. journey for seeking the sacred. And this can allow helpers to develop their awareness of the sacred in themselves and in others, and ultimately in their service or their work. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, oh, I'm so glad that you brought these stages up. So as I was um, leaning into this research and um, embodying it because, you know, for researchers, like the work we do, it changes us. Yeah. I mean, we do this work because we care about the work, but it changes us too. And so that's absolutely what happened for me as I recognized um, this pattern in my data and started to live into it as a fellow helper, um, you know, as a mom and a partner and, you know, colleague and friend and, um, researcher, author, et cetera. And so there's these seven stages that, that began to emerge and I'll list them out first. And then mm -hmm. I'll kind of talk through like how they're connected, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so the seven stages are speed, slow, steady, still, 
see, shift, and serve. So they all begin with an S mm-hmm. or, you know, um, these stages of seeking the sacred, lots of S's it all works. over. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, and what I, when the, the way in which they're connected is this understanding that um, we as helpers have got to wake up to the speed at which we are operating um, and all of the things that we're doing so that we can then slow down identify those steadying structures that kind of help our souls be in this slower pace so that we can then um, actually become still because it's not until we are fully still that we can really see the sacred within ourselves. And then once we see that divine spark, that image of God within us, we are invited to shift with compassion toward ourselves mm-hmm. and to others around us um, so that we can then go out and serve from this place of abundance and recognizing that we are beloved as we are, that there's nothing that we could do um, to be loved any more or any less than we are in this very moment. Um, and it is through that recognition of our belovedness that we're able to serve again, with abundance and with, without having strings attached to our efforts. And, um, and it's just that unconditional love that we get to extend to others in our acts of service. I'll say too, they're not like, even though they're written out in a linear way like this, um, the reality is, you know, as life is not, you know, necessarily clean and linear, it is messy. And so these stages, I think they, I hope they offer kind of a helpful framework in thinking about moving through them. But I also know too, that they're not necessarily like, you know, you can just like check a box through each one because there are going to be moments that we move from one to another and there's some fluidity too with them. Definitely. And you, you share very generously, a number of personal stories in, in these really throughout the whole book, but you talk you give wonderful examples and kind of practical suggestions for routines or uh, things to try to help people lean into these more. And I'm wondering, can you share a couple of those that have been really significant to you or you've been able to keep up with? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I loved being able to weave in um, a lot of these practices alongside, you know, the research and these different stages. Um, I, I mean, I wish I could elevate all of them. So I will definitely tell your listener, like there are so many in there that I love. There are a lot. (laughs) Yeah. um, But I would say that um, probably the handful that have most kind of stuck with me or that I'm like continuing to like lean on most, um, would be the first would be receiving support from others, which Mm -hmm. as helpers, it is, it can be really hard to receive that support and help from others. Um, you know, as, as helpers, we like to think, well, I'm the helper. I'm the one who's doing the helping and giving to you. Like, I don't need any help or I don't want to be a burden or, you know, and the reality is, is that we need to learn how to receive that help from others. So that is one that I am continually, you know, practicing and leaning on, um, especially in this season with, I know you and I can see one another. I've got a, uh, a broken elbow right now. So like, this is a great example of really needing to receive help from others. Um, but that's been a good one. 
Um, the practice of sobriety is something that I am, you know, it's just really important to me and that I am continuing to lean on. Um, I write in the book about, um, you know, at, at this point, I'm a little over two years and two months, actually almost two years and three months sober now. And so that practice of sobriety and not just with alcohol, but with, you know, leaning into that with lots of different things that we compulsively go to, to numb from the present moment and to bounce out of those hard conversations or painful places mm -hmm. or feelings and to, to actually stay with the feelings. That's, that's hard work. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important. So sobriety would be one. Um, and then I'd say two others, the other, maybe the next one I would say would be mental health treatment, um, mm -hmm. and mental health care and seeing a licensed mental health care provider, which as a social worker, I know that there is, um, that that can be really difficult for folks to access. I do try to have lots of resources in this book. Mm -hmm. If folks, that is something that they're wanting to engage in or lean on. Um, but for me and my journey and the healing work that I have had to navigate, you know, seeing a therapist on a weekly basis has been crucial for me. Um, and something I, you know, I'm deeply grateful for. And then the last one that I would elevate, um, is centering prayer. That mm -hmm. is for me, that is just, it is like a daily vitamin for my soul to have those 20 minutes. And I would say I started with like two minutes. So if you are, if you as a listener are hearing 20 and like, no thinking, no way, like it's okay to start with two, but, um, but for me having that 20 minutes each morning to, surrender to God's um, presence and action within me, the healing that is beyond my control. Um, it's beyond any kind of hustling or doing or anything that I have to do, but that just surrendering to God's presence um, and to remember that I am beloved aside from anything I do is just, oh, it's been so important for my journey. So you describe centering prayer in your book, but can you talk about that a little bit more here for people who haven't experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I would say that um, in some ways folks might think about it like meditation, but it is different. Um, I really like uh, Father Thomas Keating's writing about centering prayer. And the understanding is that um, it is a time in which you are continually returning to God's presence within you and surrendering to the moment, um, returning to your breath, just breathing in and breathing out. And your mind is gonna, you know, it's gonna bounce from one thing to the next, to the next. And I write about that in the book mm -hmm. and how, you know, there's like all the things that as soon as I get quiet and get still, my mind just wants to go real fast. And with all the things that I've got to do, um, and it is, I mean, and, and it just gives me that invitation by being still in that space to just let those thoughts go mm -hmm. and to, um, ground myself back in the present moment to, to, to drop into, um, this quiet inner space that, that just allows me to surrender to whatever God is doing within me, um, I mean, very practically, I use an app called Insight Timer 
for my practice. And, mm-hmm. um, and it does a little ding at the beginning and there's a little ding at the end. Um, it, your, uh, t- uh, father Keating, um, recommends identifying a word to use that you just kind of, um, is the word that kind of brings you back to your mm-hmm. breath when your mind is chattering a whole bunch. And for me, that word is rest. Um, and so, yeah, again, it's just, you know, remembering to just breathe in and be, um, and breathe out and just surrender to, to God's presence within me. It's a long winded answer. I don't know. know. (laughs) It's so good. And I'm so glad you, you shared those, um, those things. And then, you know, centering prayer, there has been so much research done lately about meditation as a real scientifically verified way to improve your mood and your, I mean, but it's such an important practice for us to be engaged in. And this, I think, especially as helpers too, mm-hmm. one of the things with centering prayer that I really appreciate is, you know, it does, it, it invites us to consent to God's action, you know, within us, as I mentioned. Um, but it also reminds us as helpers that like, we don't have to do every single thing. We are not always in control. We get to let go and, um, yeah. And, and just remember that, you know, there's so much more beyond our control that, that we can't keep moving through and towards with, close fists and white knuckles and, you know, yeah, we have to surrender. Yeah. It's like you, you mentioned this in your book too, the discipline of Sabbath and, you know, both of these things have this element of acknowledging that the world doesn't revolve around us, that we, we can turn off. We can turn off our, our energy, our doing this and the world will continue to spin. It will be okay. Yes. But it's hard for helpers to embrace that sometimes. It is because it immediately, I mean, I would imagine that listeners are probably thinking, yeah, if I were to stop doing something, then what would happen? What would fall through the cracks? What wouldn't get done? Who's going to do that thing if I'm not the one doing it? And, you know, and that's hard work that each of us have to kind of lean into and navigate on an individual basis and discern is it really mine to do, or am I just doing all the other things that really, it doesn't have to be me that's doing that. Um, and what am I losing if I am the one who is constantly doing all the things or what am I taking away from somebody else for possibly doing Mm -hmm. if I'm doing it for them all the time? Yeah. So, yeah. I love that you brought up Sabbath though. That's a very hard practice too. It is. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It is. I think it helps to acknowledge the fact that Sabbath doesn't always have to be an entire day Mm -hmm. for folks. There may be seasons of life in which you, you know, I write in there about seasons in which it was like a couple hours for me. And that was it. That was my life raft of Mm -hmm. a Sabbath practice. And if we can stretch it to being a full day, wonderful. Um, But, you know, but sometimes there are seasons in life where it's like, my Sabbath practice is we are going to have hot dogs and I am going to let that, going to let that go. Mm -hmm. And, and it's fine. It's okay. Holly, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book as well is you, you talk a little bit about the ways that you start noticing fruit from these practices in your life. And I'm wondering if you can tell us one or two things about that as well. 
Oh my gosh. I would be happy to. Um, so my favorite, uh, my favorite example, and I do write it about in the book, is the moment in which I was about to go record a podcast with my friend Steve, and um, I was running late, and I was running out the house, and I got to the car, and there was a flat tire, and this was about, I think, a year and a half after I had started practicing Centering Prayer. Um, and to be honest, like maybe a couple of years before then, if, if I had seen that flat tire, I would have just like lost it and been mm -hmm. so angry and frustrated and, you know, just start inflicting all kinds of shame upon myself that I should have, I should have checked it sooner. Or I mm -hmm. should have left the house sooner or whatever else. And instead I saw that flat tire and I started laughing and I just saw it as the invitation as it was to, you know, be present and to just slow down and to be like, okay, God, you clearly have a sense of humor today. And so I'm going to walk back inside and we're going to record this podcast from my home office instead. And it is going to be fine. And even my response to my husband or my text to him, when, um, when I saw the tire, I like took a picture of it and I sent it to my husband and I was just like, you know, do you mind fixing this when you get home? Like, no rush, don't worry about it. <laughs> like no big deal. And I mean, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one with this, but I just, again, I just know that like a couple of years before then, if I had seen that flat tire, I would have, I just would have been really angry and just really upset about it. Mm -hmm. And I probably would have projected that anger and shame onto people around me, like my husband and being like, you know, I probably would have gotten frustrated with him, even though I'm asking him for help. Like, um, so the fruit of these uh, you know, these practices have come together in so many ways. Like that is one. I also write about my daughter and a moment, um, in which, you know, I was working, uh, early in the morning, I was writing some, some stuff, some research article that I was working on. And she came into my office about 500 times. And she just, every time she has something new to show me. And as a parent, like I do love those opportunities to connect with her. And when they come in for like the 500th time, there's a, okay, honey, like I told you, I need, I need, I need this time right now to work on this research article. Um, not that she would understand, you know, of some of that, but like, yeah, but like, I had just told her, like, I need this space right now. And, and instead when she came in for that 501st time, I just took a deep breath and I just asked God for patience and I flipped my palms up and she, I'm going to tear up, just telling the story again. Um, she came up to me and had this piece of paper that says, you are the best mommy ever. Mm -hmm. And it had a picture of her palm with a heart in it. Um, and I just remember this heavy moment of realizing that if I had reacted in that moment, instead of contemplatively responding in that moment, I could have really hurt her and I would have missed the opportunity to receive her love, um, to see the ways that she was trying to reach out to me, that, that the, the divine spark within her was trying to communicate with me, um, and just show me that she loves me. Yeah. And so there are many, many others. Those are a couple I write about in the book, mm -hmm. but, but those are probably the two most profound ones of seeing, um, the fruit of those practices.
And I would say, and they took time. This isn't like I did one centering prayer, right? And then yeah. like the next day this happened. This is like, this was lots of practice until yeah. um, the fruit was shown. So, well, and it's, it seems like it's really, <clears throat> these practices train your, your soul and your mind and your body to yeah. create space for these kinds of things that come up in life. Yes, they do. They so do. They give us room and they, they, they train us to be able to discern um, the things that are ours to do so that we can have that room for those sacred moments to pop up, I think too. Yeah. yeah. So Holly, I wanted to ask, uh, most of our listeners are really right in this demographic, busy women who are working or studying in academia or professional spaces, people who are living lives of helpers where there's a lot to do. And I hope that they will all read your book. And I'm also wondering if you can suggest a place to start at the, as they seek to deepen their awareness of God's image, the divine within them and with others. Yeah, that's, gosh, that's such a good question. Um, and I am so thankful for the ways that you, Anne, are serving this demographic, these women and the good work that they are doing. Um, I also want to start by saying just a wholehearted thank you to the listeners mm -hmm. for the ways that they are serving others, um, particularly as they think about, you know, or as I think about their students and their colleagues and um, the folks who are impacted by their research and their teaching, uh, their communities, friends, loved ones, and more like those who are listening today, I, I do want to start by just acknowledging the good work that you do and thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, as I think about like a good place to start when it comes to deepening, you know, kind of their awareness and like kind of where to, to move from this place, I would just, I mean, as simple as it sounds, I would really invite them just to begin with awareness, like pra the practice of awareness of, um, the recognition that, um, nothing can change without that first, um, space of excavating, you know, our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations within tuning into our inner landscape and what it is that we're feeling and experiencing. Um, so starting with awareness, I think is really important, especially too, because, you know, I write in that speed chapter about those stages of change and the recognition yeah. that, um, you know, the very first stage is called pre-contemplation when we aren't even aware of how fast we're operating or the ways in which, um, you know, all that we're doing is impacting ourselves and those around us. And so whatever we can do to elevate that awareness, to move us from pre-contemplation to contemplation and recognize kind of what is happening and, and how fast am I going and how addicted, truly addicted am I to this high speed pace of my life such that I can't even slow down for a couple of months without feeling discomfort, um, let alone a few minutes, right? right. Um, so I think that, that awareness practice is really important. And again, tuning in, um, to that inner landscape and recognizing, you know, if I were to slow down for a minute, what are the thoughts that are just constantly streaming mm -hmm. in my brain? If I were to slow down for a moment, 
what are those emotions that are just kind of tucked into my heart that like, I haven't maybe fully given enough space or attention to that I need to feel. And if I were to slow down for a, a moment or two, like, what are the sensations in my body? Like, are my shoulders hurting? Are they tired? Do I feel tired? Does my chest feel really tight? Cause I'm just hunched over at a computer all day long. Like some of those practices I think are really important. So that's where I would say to start. And then I'll always will elevate, you know, the mental health piece around mm-hmm. seeing a mental health care provider and centering prayer. Those are the other two that I really like to, you know, even if it's just starting with one minute of centering prayer practice, um, that one minute, it's a, it's a worthy offering that yeah. one minute. Yeah. Well, Holly, as we wrap up, I would love for you to share with me and with our listeners, some of your hopes for this book. It just was released last month. And what what do you hope it will do in the world? Oh my gosh. I love, I love this question. I have to tell you, this is one that we ask uh, our listeners or our guests on CXMH podcast too. And it's one of my favorite question. So thank you so much for asking it. Um, so my hope for this book, as it kind of makes its way out into the world and connects with so many fellow travelers, um, and fellow helpers and the good work that they are doing is that this book invites the reader to remember that they are beloved, um, that their presence matters, that, this unpromised day that they have been given is a gift and that um, all of the things that they do to help and serve others, it is good and healing and necessary work. Um, And I would really hope that it would wake them up to the gift of their own life and just the gift it is to be alive um, Mm -hmm. and to remember that they are loved and to operate from that place of belovedness as they go out and serve others. So I am just, I'm so honored by the opportunity to write this book. Um, It served my soul in ways that I just um, cannot even describe. I mean, it's, it's so good seeing it out in the world, but it was such a gift to write the book. And I just hope that any reader who comes across it um, gets even a fraction of the, the gift that I felt like I received writing it. Holly raises so many important ideas about how we can live as fully integrated people, connecting our spiritual and mental health with the rest of our lives. I especially appreciated the emphasis Holly places on finding support for mental health, and so I've made sure to include a number of links in the show notes to help point you toward resources for finding a therapist or other help for mental health concerns. And if you listen all the way to the end of the credits, I've included a bonus from our interview where Holly responds to a struggle I posed to her, and I'll sum it up in the following way. Sometimes it feels indulgent to invest in my own mental health when there is so much visible trauma happening around the world. Why do I get to go to therapy when people in other areas hardly have their basic needs met? All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. 
You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 a month. You can find out how to do this at our website. And to ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this bit of my conversation with Holly as she offers a rationale for investing in one's soul work, even when the world feels like it's on fire. I know that I wrestled with that a ton uh, while writing the book, and it's certainly something that I continue to be mindful of. Um, For me, within my own journey, what uh, I have kind of come to, I think the the place where I've landed um, when it comes to a space of peace in this process is recognizing that I don't do this inner work to avoid the active life or to avoid the things um, that are mine to do um, that support serving others, that support advocating for um, justice and um, for caring for others. I don't do this work to avoid the active life, but I do this work to sustain me through the active life. Um, It helps me better and more carefully discern what is truly mine to do, especially when we're seeing these horrific things happening all over the world right now and within our own neighborhoods too. Um, You know, there are so many different things that we can be doing to serve and advocate and help and heal. Um, But also I realized that, you know, we also can't do everything, that we are finite and that we have to do this work of discerning what is ours to do, um, to serve others, to fight against the injustices and the war and so many things that are happening in our world. Um, But this inner work that we've been talking about, it is a privilege. And if I am not doing this work, I really am afraid that I um, am at risk of imposing my pain and hurt and trauma um, onto others who are vulnerable and keeping this cycle of harm going. And so it is a privilege and it is also feels like it's essential that we create some space to the best of our ability. Again, recognizing that certain seasons, it may look differently, but how do we create space for these practices um, and for leaning into this posture of recognizing that, that we, we have to do our inner work to sustain us and support us through um, the active work that we do to serve others as helpers. And I remember at one point writing in this book, or at one point through the writing process, really waking up to the fact that our inner healing, it counts as part of our global healing. You know, so often we are thinking about all of the the hurt around us, and we need to be mindful of that and hold space for that. We can't forget that there is hurt and pain within us and that our healing as we are a part of this world and this, this, um, this human family, like our, our healing counts as part of that global healing.